Hey everyone, I'm your host, Jody Atariwala. We are focused on aerospace and defense around the world, and we strive to bring insightful discussions straight from the experts. So if you have any topics you'd like us to explore, or any comments, please feel free to write us and we'll do our best to accommodate. Our last episode was part of our Stories from the Cockpit series, where we were talking to Captain Troy Ma, a pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force. Captain Ma has a wealth of knowledge that he's kindly sharing with us as we continue to chat about flying the Cormorant and the Sea King helicopters. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. We are thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from warfighters and leaders from around the world. In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts like you will hear today, so we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about Cubic and their amazing capabilities, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's cue the music. Okay, let's talk about training, because you get to 442 Squadron and you've got to train up on the Cormorant, uh, you yourself, but um, yep. uh, clearly that also takes simulator time, and um, I don't believe that uh, that the Canadian Air Force has a Cormorant simulator. Yeah, I don't think they do just yet. Again, it's one of those projects that was being talked about and worked on while I was there, but to do our simulator training, we would go to RAF Benson. In England? In the, in the UK, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we would stay in Oxford and uh, get a rental car and drive to REF Benson each day to to do our simulator training. Neat. And of course, it was an EH-101 simulator. Yep. Um, so we had some some minor differences, but for the most part, it was uh, it was close enough that um, it satisfied uh, what we needed to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all the emergencies and emergency handling were pretty much the same. So right. We would have a we would have a liaison guy there. Okay. Um, a liaison Cormorant pilot usually, and uh, he would be there working in tandem with the uh, instructors. For the most part, it was the Canadian liaison that would conduct our simulator sessions. Okay. Which was great too, because everybody, of course, has you know all these great experiences and a great number of hours and. You know, time, time just sitting in the back of the simulator watching other guys do the stuff so you can actually compare different techniques, you know, and, and I thought I've, I've never had the chance to be a simulator instructor, but I always thought it would be kind of neat to be able to watch guys do things and see how they do them a little bit differently and kind of compare and contrast and come up with your own techniques, you know, because a lot of times when you get in there, you, you just don't have the time to experiment and try all the things you want to try yeah you're just focused on what you gotta what you gotta achieve i guess yeah yeah, yeah. well it's time is money right i mean right canada pays to rent the simulator and it can't be cheap so you're right right yeah, for sure um so you're at the squadron 442 in comox and um and you've got to learn to train i actually kind of found it interesting uh, when you mentioned that you'll notify JRCC that you're going on a training mission. Um, that implies that even as a training flight, you got to have all uh, at least a, a good amount of uh, search and rescue equipment on board at any given time if they task you. For sure, yeah. yeah. So the way that the squadron was set up, um, you had the schoolhouse. Okay. So the operational training unit, mm-hmm. and you also had the operational flight. Okay. So my role was the uh, Cormorant flight commander. So I was in charge of the operational flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the schoolhouse had a the OTF flight commander, the operational training flight commander okay. as well. So, um, so two major positions, so equals. And ideally, on any given day, you'd have a search and rescue standby aircraft that belonged to the operational flight. Mm-hmm. And then you'd also have a training aircraft that would belong to the schoolhouse. Gotcha. 
So if the schoolhouse had students coming through, they would go and they would take their aircraft and they would do whatever lesson plans they had to do. And we could take our aircraft and my guys could fly that aircraft to wherever they wanted to fly and train. Um, so it was the it, it's the uh, operational guys that had to call the rescue center to tell them you know where they're at and what they're up to keep tabs with them. Ah. The the schoolhouse as flying with students didn't have that that obligation. You can imagine though the the conflict would arise when the schoolhouse has training obligations that they've got to try and meet, and then the operational side we have currencies and proficiencies that we'd have to try and maintain. Right. But you've only got one aircraft. Uh. So when I was there, we were able to strike a deal with the uh, with the school. And, you know, if we had only one aircraft, we would just share it. And we'd say, okay, it's yours for half the day and it's ours for half the day. Or, you know, maybe there were some days where, you know, the operational side, we didn't need it perhaps during the day, but we were planning to fly that night. So it's this constant sort of back and forth. Everybody's trying to do the best that they can with what we've got. It can be a challenge. Yep. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the the lockbox inside the aircraft that uh, would have either either pharmaceuticals or your night vision goggles. Um, that must have been a game changer. Like if you compare it to again your your time in the Sea King, where you didn't have night vision goggles, but at least now with the Cormorant, you have that ability. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, so the first time that I flew with night vision goggles was on the Cormorant, and then of course going back to the Sea King, we you know we started flying with the night vision goggles on the Seeking during the time that I was away, but they had them when I went back to the Seeking. And it it is, you know, no pun intended, it's literally night and day difference. <laughs> um, being able to see is just so much easier. <laughs> uh, everything is easier when you can see. Yeah. I don't know how guys flew search and rescue on the lab in the mountains without night vision goggles. No kidding. Yeah. Um, it, it must have been so nerve-wracking. When I was learning to fly the Sea King, uh, my first tour, and you flew around the ocean 150 feet over the water, and it's black and black and black, mm -hmm. um, we stayed away from land as best we could. Right. And that was that was always the big thing. You know, you made sure that uh, the radar was being monitored and, and uh, the navigator's job was to keep you away from land because mm -hmm. uh, that was the only thing out there to really run into. Right. Um, and then if you got close to shore, uh, you know, generally you didn't launch at night. Sure. Um, unless there was a lot of cultural lighting or the weather was super good and you could fly away from the land. Yeah, it was just something that we didn't do. So, so yeah, definitely having the uh, night vision goggles is a real game changer. Yeah. Um, I mean, they have their limitations, of course, because you've got a you know a monochrome screen and yep. that kind of stuff, and then you're looking at a two-dimensional picture. So they take some getting used to, but uh, uh, but once you sort of get accustomed to them, yeah, they're they're a fantastic, fantastic tool. Neat. I know that top cover aircraft like the Buffalo, they have the ability to dispense slow drop flares to kind of flares, illuminate yeah, yeah, to illuminate yeah. an area. But clearly you, right. got, you guys can't use that if you're using NVGs or you have to take Oh, no, much to the contrary, for sure. Really? No, they're, they're great. Um, ima imagine going out and looking at the ground on a sort of a gray, dingy day. Okay. And then the same day when it's high noon and it's sunny and bright, mm -hmm. the, the contrast that you see, the differences that you see with, with all that extra light, um, it's the same thing when you're flying at night on goggles. If, you, if, it's, a, if it's a really dark night, mm -hmm. you'll lose a lot of that contrast. And just having a flare uh, up above or behind you or even in the area, something that will help cast a shadow, yep. Uh, you'll get all that contrast back again. Interesting. And, um, so it's 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 fantastic having flare. And if you drop them, you know, if you've got an overcast layer, mm -hmm. and you drop the flare into that overcast layer, uh, it sort of illuminates the whole cloud, if you will. Right. right. Um, so you you end up sort of with this bright sky. Nice. And again, you get all that contrast from below. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. Um, 
definitely having the flares is uh, is a game changer too. I I would have imagined, and clearly I'm wrong, but I would have imagined that when you drop a flare, because the night vision goggles are are are, t- are amplifying ambient light that when you have a flare that is so bright, I thought it would just kind of overpower the goggles. But I guess it can, I- if you look right at it. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess that's, that's night vision, that. <laughs> night vision goggle one oh one, Right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's no different than looking at the sun. <laughs> right. Right. Don't look at it. <laughs> Don't look at it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that's awesome. I, don't know. <laughs> hey, I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to sound, I hate to sound simplistic about it, but really, you know, we like to overcomplicate things. Yeah, um, well, you, you, and you can, you can ask, you know, a lot of the coordination that goes on between the fixed wing aircraft and the helicopter is where to position those flares. Right. Interesting. So let me ask you about flying the Cormorant in terms of its pros and cons of it. If you were to describe the aircraft and you were to say, um, this is what I really liked about it, and this is what I didn't like about it, what would those be? Um, You know, there isn't really a whole lot of negative to say about it. I thought it was a fantastic machine to fly. It was very capable, very responsive and nimble, Mm -hmm. definitely smoother than, than... you know, a, a four-bladed helicopter like I've been flying most recently. Right. And, you know, that third engine is is fantastic, having that third engine. I think, you know, in, in a lot of cases, and the Sea King was no different, uh, a lot of cases it's just the sort of the sensors on board that, that kind of hold you back. Right. Um, or maybe the lack of sensors. Well, let's, uh, you know, and, yeah, let's speak to that. What sensors are on the, on the Cormorant today? Uh, for the most part, a lot of our searches were, were visual, hmm. um, and you were relying on uh, sort of external uh, cues to find your target. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, you know, you'd have your, your standard ELT would just be a radio homing signal, so you had all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think pretty much every machine can, can do some sort of homing like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but something like a, you know, a FLIR would be handy. Yep. Um, during my time there, there was a project in place or at least some paperwork put in for a project to try and get that going. Yeah. Well, you know, that'll be one of the things that we close this conversation with because there is a Cormorant's uh, midlife upgrade program that's, uh, that the Air Force is pursuing at the moment. And, uh, I'll give a little bit of a, a description of what that entails, but, um, I guess I could just ask from from your perspective, uh, what are your thoughts about any upgrade program that kind of enhances an aircraft? I think it's a, just a requirement of uh, of operating an aircraft, uh, particularly in a in a military context. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if if the government and the people of Canada want our air force to be relevant, it needs to be maintained. Right. And, um, you know, you can't you can't fly an aircraft that was, let's say, designed in 80s or 90s, <laughs> right. built in the 90s, put into service in 2000 and expect it to be relevant 20, 20 years later. I mean, the airframe might still fly. The, the aircraft might still be safe to fly. But a lot of that kit inside is going to be vastly different today than it was 30 years ago when it was designed. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at your, you look at something like your computer, right? Uh, and how many times it gets upgraded? I mean, it's constantly being upgraded, right? And uh, the the avionics uh, in the aircraft are the same way. They're all just little computer programs that need to be upgraded, and because they can run more efficiently, they can do more things. Yep. Um, so uh, I think it's just, it's a good thing. You know, it's one of those things, it's a necessary thing and it's something that, that we need to embrace. Yeah. And clearly it also addresses the issue of obsolescence. You know, things perhaps aren't manufactured anymore either. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the Cormorant, I know that there are various versions of the Merlin aircraft, the AW101, it used to be EH101, uh, that uh, that has air-to-air refueling probes. Um, the Cormorant, of course, does not. Uh, but you would have had very long missions because the Joint uh, Rescue Coordination Center in Victoria covers all of British Columbia, Yukon, and off the coast. So... There are missions that I, I imagined you would have had that would have been extremely long ranges. So, 
How would you guys have responded to some of those? Is there anything that you would have done to uh, extend the range of the Cormorant? Um, well, I, I kind of alluded to it a little bit there when we talked about equipment that we carry on board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first the first avenue that comes to my mind is to to remove whatever kit we could on board uh, so that we can actually fill up the aircraft. Right. Um, a lot of times uh, we couldn't actually fill it right to full fuel because we had too much extra kit on it. Oh, okay. um, you know, so something like the uh, increase in the all-up weight to fifteen thousand six hundred, for instance, mm-hmm. um, that would that would help alleviate that. Right. Um, where that stands now, I'm not quite sure. Sure. But uh, so yeah, right off the bat, if we needed more fuel on board, sometimes we had to remove some kit. Um, but you know, if you knew, for instance, that you were headed offshore, uh, you probably didn't need all your camping gear on board. Right. You know. Yeah. So a lot of that stuff could be removed right Right. um you had to sort of plan your trip around where your fuel stops were essentially Mm -hmm. Uh, now flying offshore off the uh off the west coast it's not like we have oil rigs to land on like they do out east right so there may be a uh there may be a frigate out there now i'm not sure if uh cormorant has actually ever landed on a frigate Mm -hmm. um I know from Flying Sea Kings that there is a uh, a section in the shipborne helicopter operating manual that talks about cormorants landing on the back of frigates. Okay. Um, like I said, I don't know if it's ever been done. Right. <laughs> so you might, you know, you could find yourself in a situation where you go out there and you, you need some fuel. I mean, it's either land on the back of a frigate or run out of gas. So, I mean... I, I would give it a try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess if the deck can take it, you got to land. You know? um, but, you know, that'd be the kind of thing that hopefully you could you could try and tee that up ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the rescue center is pretty much co-located with the regional operations center. Okay. So if something like that were to come up where, you know, there's a mission that far offshore where you, um, where, you know, you felt like you needed to refuel on a ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may be able to ask the rescue coordinator and just say, hey, is there a, is there a frigate out there that we could land on for fuel? Or right. perhaps another tanker or, or something like that. I'm not sure. Right, right. Um, well, and, you know, barring that, uh, you know, you, you may just have to wait. Right. And um, I think one of the things that we forget, uh, and I see it a lot when, when training uh, with guys, mm-hmm. is guys, everybody's everybody's very ambitious. Everybody wants to help out and they want to help now right and um your biggest job uh, as a search and rescue mission commander is to make somebody's day a little bit better sure but you can't do that at the expense of your crew right so the biggest job is to make sure that your crew is looked after first and sometimes that means having the patience to just say i can't do this safely right now but you know, if I wait a couple of hours, the sun's going to be up. Mm-hmm. It'll be easier then. Or if I wait a couple of hours, that ship that I'm supposed to hoist to is going to be another 60 miles closer to shore. I can get more gas out of that. Right. So it's a really is a, a balancing act. You know, that's not to say that you couldn't preposition somewhere, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is, uh, let's say you do have to go and do an offshore trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're, you're, the ship you're going to is 300 miles offshore. Okay. Um, that would be a stretch. So you might say, well, if it's traveling at 20 knots uh, and it's heading straight towards shore, it's going to be five hours for it to transit 100 miles. Yep. What can I do in that five hours to help reduce the transit time? Well, I mean, if the ship is straight towards Port Hardy and we're in Comox, well, we could probably reposition somewhere closer by. Sure. And yeah. make sure the aircraft's fueled and ready to go when it's within range. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's that kind of thing that we would do to try and make sure that we've got fuel that we need. Right. Um, would you ever consider shutting down one of the three engines to get to save on fuel and just continue to get some range out of it? Um, well, that's a good question. They, they, uh, there was a project uh, that investigated that, and I know they did trials on it during the time that uh, that I was at 442 Squadron. Okay. I don't know what the results are of it, 
Um, but I got the impression that there wasn't a lot to be gained um, simply because when you shut down one of the engines, uh, the other two just had to work that much harder to keep things going. Right. Uh, okay. The fuel savings was not really all that significant. Right, right. Um, Interesting. Not to mention, if you once you've shut one of the engines down, you know, your, your max speed is reduced a little bit. Um, so you're not traveling as far. So usually, you know, when you're worried about something like that, you're trying to get somewhere right um, as efficiently as you can. Generally, that involves involves some speed. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of speed, what was the max that you could get out of the Cormorant, like a, a, a safe um, kind of response crew speed? At sea level, its uh, its max speed was 151 knots or 150 knots. Okay. Um, of course, that like any aircraft or any helicopter, that reduces as you as you go up in altitude. Right, right. So, um, so you want your your rough uh, operating altitude typically would be? Uh, well, it would all depend on the situation. To be to be honest with you. Okay. Um, if we could transit somewhere VFR, probably it would be five hundred feet. But, um. You know, if the winds, if you had a great tailwind up high, you might want to take advantage of that and, and climb up and catch that tailwind. Right. Um, or if you're fighting a headwind and, you know, you might want to be down low to try and stay out of it. Mm-hmm. Or if it's uh, if it's a particularly turbulent day, uh, you might want to be up high above the hills so that you're not down getting beat up. There are so many different factors that go into that. It's, it's a tough question to answer. I don't think there's a one one specific altitude that we would transit at as a rule. Interesting. And so I guess that's part and parcel of when you when you get the alert to launch, your whole pre-flight is kind of where you got to go and what's the conditions like? Yeah, generally, uh, you know, what would happen is you'd get a phone call and um, uh, you'd get a sort of quick synopsis of what's happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, if it happened to be during the day when your crew is there, your crew would all gather and as the mission commander, you would start assigning duties. And generally, that would be, you know, first officer and the flight engineer maybe go out and start the aircraft so that, uh, you know, as the mission commander and the uh, SARTAC team lead, uh, you'd be on the phone, on speakerphone with uh, the rescue center, mm-hmm. uh, getting whatever details and information um, they have. And, uh, and then you'd quickly file a flight plan, perhaps, make sure you've got everything that you need on board and, and off you'd go. You know, you may or may not have to top up with fuel or you may have to, you know, add some extra gear or take some extra gear off. Um, like I said, so the second SARTEC a lot of times was just a, somebody who would be a runner, perhaps, to, to try and run gear out to the aircraft or take some stuff off. Um, and then ideally, once you were off filed, everybody's on board, ready to go. The aircraft's running. Um, you know, the mission commander straps in and says, okay, pre-taxi, let's go. And then you start taxiing off. And then as you get airborne, you know, you can, depending on the transit time and what's going on, you could brief the whole crew and get everybody on the same page mm-hmm. uh, while you're on the way. Hey, everyone. I'd like to share a few words about our sponsor, IMP Aerospace and Defense. IMP is a leading in-service support provider for military and civilian aircraft. The company is instrumental in supporting the Royal Canadian Air Force deploy the Cormorant Search and Rescue Helicopter across Canada. IMP provides total in-service support of the aircraft. So short of flying the aircraft and jumping out the back of it, almost every other aspect of supporting this no-fail search and rescue capability is the responsibility of IMP Aerospace and Defense. The story doesn't end there though. Many are unaware that IMP Aerospace and Defense is one of the only third-party maintainers of the AW-101 helicopter in the world. As recognized at the International AW-101 User Group, Canada has higher fleet availability than anyone else in the world by a strong margin and less than half the maintenance hours per flying hour of the next nearest competitor. So there is no argument that IMP Aerospace and Defense is providing value for money. As Canada's in-service support provider for the Cormorant over the past 22 years, IMP is uniquely positioned to maintain the rotary wing SAR capability throughout the transition to the Cormorant midlife upgrade fleet. 
That makes IMP the only choice from a risk management perspective to continue supporting the Cormorant fleet going forward. To learn more about them, please visit impaerospaceanddefense.com. And that's defense with a C. Now, let's get back to our chat with Troy. You know, I, I remember meeting you at Comox, and I remember that, uh, I guess at that time you were a flight commander, and I distinctly remember you telling me about um, helping train junior officers. And I remember very distinctly that you were very passionate about it. And maybe some of that was from your uh, Portage La Prairie days and thinking back to being an instructor there. But uh, um, I just remember that you were very, very passionate about caring for the junior guys and making sure that they trained well to be good pilots. And, you know, I would imagine any instructor would be, but um, you weren't an instructor at 442, but you were a flight commander. And, uh, (laughs) you know, that rings very strongly in my mind. And... uh, I thought that was really neat. Yeah, it was. Um, well, I mean, the 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 flight commander job and the the search and rescue job that was the best job I think that I'll ever have. To be honest with you, I'm disappointed that I had to leave it, but at the same time, you know, my my family didn't want to leave Vancouver Island, and the military being what it is, you can't stay in Comox forever. So right, <laughs> <laughs> right. So I've since moved on to other things, but <clears throat> but you know, um, it was it was rewarding on so many different levels. And, um, you know, part of the job as the flight commander is, is mentoring and, uh, and looking after your guys mm-hmm. and, you know, from an administrative aspect, but also from a, from a training aspect, uh, making sure that they've got the tools that they need to do the job that you expect of them. You know, I'd like to think that, um, uh, I wasn't, uh, overbearing with, with direction. You know, I generally, my job or my instruction to the guys was, you know, come in, there's an aircraft sitting on the line for you. I expect you to fly it. That's what I want you to do. I want you to fly it and I want you to train your people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, don't take it out and just joyride. Go actually do things and try different things and, and make sure that you're prepared for when the time comes. And, um, you know, one of the challenges, like I said, that we had was sharing the aircraft. And um, when I got there, uh, we didn't fly on weekends generally, mm-hmm. and uh, and we didn't fly a whole lot at night. Okay. Um, and I, I particularly felt that not flying at night was a bit of a problem. Because if you can do something at night, if you can do a sequence at night, you can do it during the day. It's, it's just easier during the day. Sure. Right. And um, and I felt that the aircraft were maybe not used as much as they could have been. So rather than squabbling over hours during the day, mm-hmm. um, you know, I moved to a more night intense program. And so, it, you know, we ended up flying Monday through Thursday nights, let's say, and then not on Friday, Saturday or Sunday nights. Okay. Um, so a little bit more night flying, which was a bit of a challenge to to input and to sell to to everybody. But I think once it sort of came became routine, I think people saw the benefit of it. You know, for me, it it really helped me sleep better at night, knowing that uh, knowing that I did everything that I could to make sure that everybody had the opportunities that they needed. You know, most definitely, you know, having uh, the the opportunity to teach in Porters of Prairie and teach ab initio students that definitely helped shape me as a as an instructor. I think. Mm-hmm. So you know, when I came to Comox and you know my role there as the as a flight commander and as a even as a as an aircraft captain mission commander, um, you know, helping helping new guys learn the machine and learn the job. That definitely gave me some tools, some more tools that, uh, you know, maybe other guys might not have the luxury of, of picking up because they haven't done that. You know, I think the military in general, we do a very good job of teaching our people and teaching our people to teach. Hmm. Uh, because it's expected that when you become an aircraft captain, part of your job is to teach, uh, you know, a first officer or a co-pilot mm-hmm. uh, the job that you do. Right. And, and make sure that they're ready to do that job down right. the road. Right. I would have imagined that maybe one of the issues that you perhaps encountered in trying to shift to a, a, a night-heavy schedule would have been just maintenance and keeping the aircraft, um, you know, serviced. Um, but as I was thinking that out, I was thinking, well, those guys have to be there 24 hours a day anyways. Um, maintenance is civilian run on the Cormorant. 
So I don't know the ins and outs of the contract, but at times it was a challenge for sure. Because again, even though they're there anyways, maybe their duties normally at night would entail something a little more relaxed, a maintenance task that, you know, they're not pressured, worried about you know, when that aircraft's going to be back, worried about the fact that it's going to need fuel, it's going to need to be towed in or towed out for the night shift, mm-hmm. um, things like that, you know, and then and then adding the, the flying program onto it, it, um, it adds that extra layer of complexity to it. But, you know, all that to say, at the end of the day, you know, there might have been some give and take at times, but the working relationship was great, you know, with, with everybody. Yeah, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so have you had any in-flight emergencies if you've, as you've flown uh, in the Cormorant? You know what, I've, I've been incredibly lucky my whole career, actually, touch wood. Touch wood, man. Um, anything that I've had uh, in-flight emergency-wise, I would hardly characterize any, as an emergency, uh, even. That's great to um, hear. <laughs> there have been there been the odd there's been the odd time where I've said had to declare a pan call just because something's come up, but it hasn't been a situation that's so dire that I'm I'm you know ditching an aircraft or looking to land it in the weeds somewhere or, or whatever. Right. I can think of a time on um, on the Cormorant where uh, we were transiting somewhere up northern BC. But, you know, we were, I'm going to say, less than half an hour from our destination airport. Mm-hmm. No, it must have been even closer than that because we ended up landing at the airport. Oh. But we had, a, we had a hydraulic problem. One of the hydraulic systems lost its pressure. Okay. Um, now, the Cormorant has three hydraulic systems. Gotcha. So triple redundancy. Hmm. So you lose one, the other two can quite easily pick up the slack, and you don't notice anything in the machine other than the fact that a gauge turns red. Gotcha. You know, really, that's it. I don't even recall if uh, the flight engineer saw hydraulic fluid down the side of the aircraft. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, But because you've lost a redundant system, it becomes a a land-as-soon-as-possible emergency. Right. Uh, Which generally means you're landing it in sort of this first safe, suitable location. Okay. In this particular context, it happened to be an airport. Luckily. So so we landed there, and uh, I think it was just a fitting that had come loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was able to tighten up the fitting, top up the fluid, and that was it. Of course, there was some paperwork to go along with that and some phone calls home, but, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as these things go. But, you know, it was... That that's pretty much one of the biggest ones that I can think of, really. Wow, um, you are very lucky. Short of, you know, there's always there's you're always fighting the weather. Sure, the weather the weather is the biggest emergency out there, you know. <laughs> but um, no, aircraft wise, I've been very lucky. Oh, I'm very glad to hear that, Troy. That's yeah. awesome. I can tell you one of my Sea Kings. This one's kind of funny, maybe. Okay, go for it. Uh, so the Sea King has these fabric patches um, they're blade wear patches on the leading edges of the blades okay and uh when it would rain you can imagine if, have you ever ridden a motorcycle in the rain and you hit you get the raindrops hitting your face and it really stings Stings, sure yeah or you know driving your bicycle really fast yep. or maybe, yep. maybe going down a ski hill or something like that right yeah it just it really whips and so you imagine you know, these blades whipping around through the air, hitting the rain. Well, it, it wears these fabric blade patches on the front of the blades. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you'll get this, a blade patch will let go. It'll just rip. And you'll get this whistling sort of swishing sound. And uh, one of my first training flights on the operational training unit on the Sea King, uh, I was flying with my instructor and we started to hear this whistling sound. And he, of course, he knew exactly what it was. But me, as a as a brand new guy, I'm thinking to myself, "Wait a minute! You're telling me that the blade is starting to fall apart? Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't sound right." No, you know. And uh, well, we ended up sort of hovering over the runway at the airfield, uh-huh. and uh, his plan was to hover taxi back to the ramp. And I said, "Can we? Can we land? Can we land?" And you know, he he humored me and he put it down, and we landed and we taxied yeah. in and. And then he showed me what it was all about afterwards, you know, and uh, of course, again, it's one of those things that I got to teach people about down the road. But uh, but I just remember thinking to myself, geez, that blade's going to fall apart. That doesn't seem right. <laughs> and now here you are flying, flying the Cormorant with, you know, composite blades and five of them. As, yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, we would do ferry flights on the Sea Kings from one coast to the next just for maintenance. Sure. 
there was a particular flight where I was with a crew and we landed in Glasgow, Montana. And it was this little nowhere town. Uh, we landed there just to get fuel and carry on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we landed and we shut the aircraft, uh, shut head down on the aircraft. We left uh, our, our APU running. Mm-hmm. Um, the Seeking doesn't actually have an APU, but we would leave number one running in, in accessory mode and call that our APU. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, so we left our APU running, and I told the co-pilot, "Okay, you fuel it up. I'm going to go file, and you know we'll hit the road." Yep. And uh, as I was walking into the uh, the FBO, the ASOP that I was with tapped me on the shoulder and looked back at the aircraft, and he said, "Hey, what do you think of that?" <laughs> and as I looked back, one of the one of the blades had actually one of the aluminum pockets on the blade had actually let go. Oh no! And so it was just this piece of metal, this chunk of metal hanging down off the blade Uh um but i mean we heard it whistling (laughs) just assumed assumed it was a blade patch yeah yeah uh but there was no no adverse flight control response or anything like that um it just goes to show you how robust these things are i was just gonna say it's resilient yeah 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 you know, of course, going from the, the search and rescue community back to the Sea King community mm-hmm. um, and having been a search and rescue guy, mm-hmm. going back to the Sea King community, I would often be called upon to, to ask questions about search and rescue and how how we might employ the Sea King in search and rescue. And, and uh, part of the uh, part of the crew commander upgrade for uh, the Sea King guys uh, is a search and rescue scenario. So I would be involved with with prepping the guys for for things like that, you know. That's fantastic. um, Because obviously you have that expertise, right? Yeah. So, so of course, you know, I would, part of my job as the trainer would just be sort of devil's advocate at times, you know, and I'd say, well, what about this and what about that? And would you consider launching the buffalo and and having him drop flares for you? you Mm. And Commonly, guys would say, "Yeah, no, no, I don't want flares. I don't want flares are going to drown out the goggles." Mm-hmm. And and I'd say, "Well, actually, yeah, actually, they work really well." And then one of the one of the techniques for getting back to the ship at night mm-hmm. or, or in in really poor weather mm-hmm. uh, is to drop flares off the back of the ship into the water. Ah, so the the, the salt water activated flares. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so you would drop them sort of at, at intervals, you know, so you drop one in the water and then as it disappears, you drop the next one in the water and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the helicopter creeping up the wake of the ship could follow the flares to to find the ship. That is super and, cool. Uh, in, in really poor weather. Yeah. And uh, some guys would say to me, well, we don't want to do that if, at night if we're on goggles because you'll, you'll drown out the goggles. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, just don't look at the flare. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy, just, yeah. <laughs> just just lift the goggles a little bit, right? You know, right. So you're not they're not drowning you. You're out. I, I don't. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. I guess until you're there, you you kind of have these assumptions, and... but you don't know, right? You right. don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know what um, you don't know. Yeah. So you know, somebody somebody a lot smarter than me told me once that where are some of our experiences, right? So yes. Absolutely. If you've never seen it, how the hell would you know? Right. Yeah. And 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 perhaps more to the point, don't assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Don't assume that the flares won't work or won't be usable, you know. Um, well, I guess the, the counter argument is that, you know, geez, if you get in there and you're blinded by these, these flares, well, then what? Yeah. But, uh, right. But, but you don't, like I said, you don't know what you don't know. I mean. And if you really get into that position of trial and error, well, you got two pilots. <laughs> you know, have one have one use the goggles and one not, and see what happens. Right? You know, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know. that that goes down another rabbit hole that I'm still not to this day happy with the seeking community about, but whatever. Oh, really? How so? Well, it's just a, this this idea of a split cockpit. They had a rule that you weren't allowed to fly uh, with one person on goggles and one person not on goggles. Oh, really? Oh, that doesn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense to me either. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to miss seeing it fly, that's for sure. So let's close out. Troy, I don't know if you've given thought about um, perhaps a mission, a Cormorant SAR mission that stands out in your mind. But if there is one, I'd love for you to talk me through it. Uh, geez, you know, I could talk, I could talk your ear off. <laughs> there's so many. Not that there's, not that there's so many, it's just each one is, uh, different and, and each one comes with its own challenges. 
Yeah. Um, I guess maybe I'll talk about one of the last ones that I did. Sure. Um, um, so I think it was, might have been September of 2013. Okay. Um, it was a night trip. Um, so my crew was in uh, for our night training training mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were just we had just arrived and we were loading our bags on the aircraft and uh, so we got a call from rescue center mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'll remember it till the day I die. The, <laughs> the controller says to me, "Hey Troy, I got a good one for you." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? That's an interesting it, way to start. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> no, no, exactly. Yeah. And uh, he says, no, no, no. He says, a, a, a hiker has fallen, a climber has fallen, and he's at 10,000 feet. Wow. Okay. And I said, 10,000 feet? Yeah. He says, yeah, he's on a cliff at 10,000 feet. And I'm like, I said, I don't even know if I can do that. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if the helicopter will hover that high. Oh, interesting. Um, so I said, let me let me get back to you. So I mean, I hung up with him quickly, and I went to the charts and started looking at the charts, and yeah, and uh, I got the flight engineer involved, and you know, between us, we kind of looked at it and said, well, maybe we could do it, uh, you know, if we had next to no fuel and no weight on board and things like that, and right. So you know, I phoned back and I said, well, hey, we'll give it a try. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, uh, for sure. Um, it's going to be tight on fuel, though. Uh, you know, what can you set up for fuel nearby and things like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this guy fell on um, a mountaintop called Fascination Mountain or Fascination Peak. It's near uh, near the Mount Waddington Glacier. Okay. Um, now, Mount Waddington is one of the highest peaks in uh, in BC. Okay. So it pretty much due north of Comox, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so before we went, I, I asked the Sartex to take off whatever dive kit they have on board because, you know, they're to dive tanks and suits and weights can weigh things down. And, and, uh, and I said, anything, anything that you think we won't need, like, let's, let's get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and so off we went. And, of course, the Buffalo came up with us. We had them up there as top cover. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a nice, it was a nice evening. Okay. Um, we remember it being fairly clear. Okay. Uh, light light winds though, so we got close to our church location, and um, you know, of course, it's nighttime, so we happened to see a whole bunch of lights down on a, a bit of a glacier. Mm-hmm. So immediately we thought, well, it's got to be down there, right? And uh, it was pretty close to our GPS position, so we start circling this this sort of camp that's set up on the glacier, and then one of the orbits as we come around, I get this voice from the back, and it says, "Hey, boss, look back here." <laughs> And I, I look back over my shoulder, and there, just on this dark cliff, is just one little light, <laughs> all by itself. And I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> I guess that's it. <laughs> I guess that's it. So, uh, so we turned around, and um, we did our power checks on route up at ten thousand feet. Okay. And, and um, we determined that we were we were going to be able to hover at ten thousand feet at whatever weight we were at. It should have been okay. Cool. And um, so when we did our approach to the to the ledge, mm-hmm. um, it was down around nine thousand three hundred feet, something like that. Okay. Uh, so a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. Once we got sort of in position, uh, you know, I was hovering next to the cliff, and the flight engineer kept saying, "Steady down, steady down, steady down," but we just kept sinking. Oh no. Okay. And um, so you know, I flew away on that first one. Uh huh. Uh, just, there's lots of drop off beneath it because it's this big ledge. Okay. Uh, this little ledge sort of with a lot of pretty steep cliff underneath. Yeah. And um, so, so we tried the second time, and the same thing. And and we must have been just sort of on the the leeward side of the hill in a bit of a downdraft or something like that. Right. Okay. Uh, but for whatever reason, we weren't able to hold the hover. As we as we try to hold the hover, the aircraft would just start to sink and fall away. Oh no. Okay. Um, so I made the call and I said, okay, well, this is what we're going to do, guys. We're going to drive down the hill and we're going to land in this riverbed over here and we're going to take everything that we can off the helicopter. Huh. Okay. So we that's what we did. We flew down to this riverbed, um, found a gravel bar to land on, mm-hmm. and uh, the Sartex and the flight engineer went to work and they, they unloaded the helicopter as much as they could. They took everything out that they possibly could. Uh, short of like the res- rescue basket and some you know medical supplies and things like that. Right. And um, and then we marked the location, of course. Uh, so then we took off and we climbed back up the mountain and um, 
this time we were able to pick up the patient, but uh, of course we were going to be really short on fuel. Okay. Um, so there's a, a place just north of Mount Waddington called White Saddle Ranch. Okay. And um, that's actually where these this hiker had had taken off from. Uh. So I guess I guess what had happened is that there was a German hiker who was with his guide, and his guide was this older lady who she looked like she was a hundred pounds soaking wet. <laughs> Um, but apparently she was somehow able to arrest this guy's fall. This guy had fallen and they were tied off. Wow. And, uh, she was able to arrest this guy's fall and lower him to this ledge. Holy smokes. But he was, he was pretty busted up. So his, you know, his arm was broken and things like that. Wow. Um, so he couldn't really go anywhere. Right. And, um, of course it was nighttime, this high hover, um, that the cormorant had a challenge doing. So I could imagine a smaller helicopter would be, would be even harder to do, not to mention again, like I said, it was night. So, right. So we get the call, even though it, like I said, it would be, uh, probably a provincial jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. This would be one of those humanitarian cases where, uh, you know, maybe they don't have the capability or they don't want to wait out the night. Right. So again, we get up there and we pick this guy up and there, um, there happened to be fuel just north of where we were so so as we're doing the the um the pickup i asked the uh, buffalo guys to drive up to white saddle ranch and check it confirm that they have fuel confirm that the weather is good you know mm-hmm. things like that uh, relay our intentions to jrcc so that they knew because where we were we could have had comms with jrcc through the the satellite phone okay uh but you know what we were up to at the time was pretty labor intensive. So it was kind of hard to relay all that information. So it was just nice to have uh, the Buffalo up ahead. Right. Um, and of course, once I had dropped off the gear on the, on this Creek bed, um, you know, I radioed to the Buffalo and I told them what our plan was. And I said, this is our bingo fuel time. Like you need to just please remind us you know, at such and such a time mm-hmm. that it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's going to be a, our min fuel to get to, to white saddle ranch. Right. But it all worked out. I mean, uh, the Sartex told me that the, you know, the ledge was no bigger than a coffee table. Um, wow. they were able to get down. We were able to get both Sartex down with the rescue basket. Okay. And I told them, I said, you've got to be, you don't have time to package the patient up and, and play nursemaid. I said, you, you really just got to get him in the basket and we'll come back and pick you up. Right. Because um, we don't have fuel. Right. I said, if, if we we can do one circuit, you know, with a couple of hoists on either end, mm-hmm. uh, but any more time than that and we have to leave. And, and pot- um, potentially leave so them there? No, yeah, they, they were really quick about it. Okay. And, uh, they got this poor guy in the basket as quick as they could. And uh, so, yeah, we picked him up and we made it up to uh, White Saddle Ranch. And uh, we landed on. We were able to get fuel. Yep. And uh, he... Uh, his guide got off at White Saddle Ranch and, and stayed there, um, but the patient had to stay with us and all the way back to Comox to get him to medical care. Right. So we flew from there back to uh, back to the creek and we picked up our stuff. And um, the, you know the the guy, the first officer that I was with, had never seen flares at night. All right. So when we did the landing in the creek bed, yeah, we had the uh, we had the buffalo drop some flares for us. Okay. So that he could see how those work and. Nice. And um, and then we picked up our stuff and we came home and handed our patient off to the ambulance. And that was about it. That was fantastic. But uh, How long had that whole mission taken? Um, five hours, maybe. Wow. Wow. I can uh, actually got my logbook close at hand here. I could tell you. Huh. Give me a second. <laughs> that is so cool. And that, that I'm sure that German uh, hiker will never forget you. You know, um, you don't often hear uh, what what came of the people that you pick up. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely one of the one of the most rewarding things about that job, uh, being the flight commander was just knowing that you're part of it all. And, and every once in a while you would get a, um, a thank you letter from somebody. Mm. And, uh, you know, on more than one occasion, I would stand up in front of the squadron with a thank you letter that came from somebody, uh, whether or not it was a mission that I did it, who's to say. Sure. But, you know, we get this thank you letter and I get to read it in front of the squadron and just the, you know, the sense of pride that, that I felt as a, you know, as being part of that chain of events, part of that outfit, uh, and as being the, the flight commander, like 
it's just incredible. Like something that I won't forget. So here it is in my logbook. It was uh, so the actual pickup to um, to go to White Saddle Ranch was two point eight. Okay. And then and then one point eight coming back. So all told, about five hours. Five hours. Yeah. That is fantastic. Well, I think anybody that calls for help and they see a yellow aircraft orbiting above, whether it be a fixed wing or a or a helicopter, I think they should thank their lucky stars that it's uh, it's a Canadian Air Force coming to the rescue. Oh yeah, and I mean just uh, the the service that we provide is just outstanding. I think it's an amazing part of the Air Force that I don't think many people appreciate really. And, yeah. um, and in the States, it's the Coast Guard that will show up and they often get notoriety. And, and I know from reporting here in Canada that, uh, oftentimes people say, Oh, it's a Coast Guard that, that, that picked me up or, or saved me, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's That's not, right. it's not the Coast Guard. <laughs> no. It's the Air Force. And, uh, yeah. And I think that that story is a, it's a wonderful story. And I'm so thankful for you to take the time to share it with me and with the listeners. And, uh, and I hope this just gives a bit of flavor of, of what the Canadian forces do and what the, what the Air Force does and specifically what the search and rescue community does. Perfect. Well, I hope I was able to do it all justice. Uh, you did. You did, Troy. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, we wish you all the all the best for the future. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see you flying some other Air Force aircraft. Well, thanks, Jody. It's, my, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Troy. Really appreciate it. So that was Captain Troy Ma with uh, the Royal Canadian Air Force. So in closing out this episode, we want to share that the Royal Canadian Air Force now has a Cormorant Midlife Upgrade Program underway, which is meant to address obsolescence. The program will also utilize some of the VH-71 Kestrel helicopters that Canada acquired after that program was cancelled in the United States. To carry out the upgrade, Team Cormorant was formed by a collaboration of Leonardo Helicopters and IMP Aerospace and Defense along with CAE, GE Canada, and Collins Aerospace Canada. The upgrade will bring the Cormorant to the latest AW101-612 standard, and leverages the non-recurring R&D which was done for Norway's AW101 SAR aircraft. The capability enhancements will see the installation of a new Collins glass cockpit and avionics, a 4-axis digital flight control system, wireless internal communications, and new sensors like an electro-optical infrared sensor, a search radar, AIS, a cell phone detection system, and more. The program will upgrade all existing Cormorant helicopters and will add new airframes to the fleet. So that wraps up this episode. If you have any questions for our guest, or any topics you'd like us to cover, or any questions, please write to us. Thanks everyone, have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.